This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I've been waiting a long time to do this episode. There's a couple of things on today's episode. In the second half of the show, I've got an interview with Brian Elliott. Brian was on an episode before and was incredibly popular. He runs the Future Forum, which is a think tank staffed and funded by Slack, the technology company, which sort of delves into how we're going to be working in the future. Uh, so he, he had a, he's got a book out this week and I wanted to chat to him. But firstly, I wanted to chat about a couple of things of my own. Over the last couple of years, I've been working on a book about resilience. It's called Fortitude and it's available to pre-order today. And there's a full link and details in the show notes. Resilience is a strange thing and I found myself sort of immersed in it. I, I don't know, I, I just don't think we heard a lot about resilience when I was a kid. And if you delve into that, that's almost certainly true. Google runs something called the Engram Project, which allows you to see the frequency of different words in books. And the word resilience has grown thousands of percent. In fact, thousands of percent, even since the millennium. And resilience training is absolutely everywhere. Obviously, resilience is an incredibly desirable thing. The idea that you can bounce back from adversity, from setbacks, of course, is desirable. But the the growth of it is astonishing. These schools offering resilience training, firms offering resilience training, it's absolutely everywhere. Think about resilience training is it's a product that was designed to serve a need. So people said our workers are feeling broken or our kids are feeling fragile. And frankly, market forces stepped in to solve it. You know, we can fix that. The thing about the resilience training that's offered is large. It's largely based on the work of one man, Martin Seligman. It sort of derives from his work. And Martin Seligman is like the Robert De Niro of psychology in the sense that his early work was dazzling. It redefined ways of thinking. It won him a lot of respect. He was elected to lead the American Psychological Association. He claims by the biggest margin ever. But I think his later work leaves questions in your head, specifically If you've been sent on resilience training, the elephant in the room is that it doesn't work. And don't take my word for that. Uh, His approach is used in schools and despite his own research saying that it's effective, when researched by other people, when they've tried to replicate his research, they've come back and said it has no effect different to a control group. And it's the finding repeatedly, you know, to the extent that he's had to address it himself. Most notably, the US military awarded him a no-pitch contract and set about training the whole of the US army in his approach. It's over a million people, million personnel. It's been researched by others and probably the leading analyst who's sort of delved into all the data, who's checked it all out, says there is zero evidence it does anything to help soldiers. So 
this isn't just one set of work. This is there's a whole realm of research that I regard as something of a resilience orthodoxy. P- things like grit. You've probably heard of grit by Angela Duckworth or growth, growth mindset made famous by Carol Dweck. Scratch beneath the surface. And these charming ideas, these ideas that we'd love to be true, they don't seem to be able to get the evidence to back them up. And here's the conundrum about all of this, is that, you know, for all the, the fact that the training might not work, and if you've been sent on a resilience training course, I'm almost certain you came away thinking, I don't feel any different. And you may be scared to admit that to your boss, to your colleagues, to the people around you. Despite all of that, we know that resilience actually does exist. You know, we look at the people in the Ukraine, we're dazzled by the the strength, the the confidence that they exhibit it's just like this awe-inspiring resilience or you know people who survive natural disasters and you just think wow surely you must feel like your whole life's been swept away and they're just showing this this strength this resolve to press on so resilience does definitely exist and here's, here's the important nuance when we find resilience it isn't this magic superpower it isn't something that you can instruct someone to summon It isn't something actually that's individualistic. The thing about resilience is as inconvenient as it might be for the people who instruct us to develop it, is resilience isn't individual, it's collective. The reason why the people of the Ukraine, the people who we witness in the aftermath of natural disasters, the reason why they are able to perform these incredible acts of confidence is because they feel connected to the people around them. So I've written, I've written all of this into a book and I've, I've spent two years writing this book. I'm incredibly proud of the result of it. And I've, it's, it's available today for pre-order. Now, if you're interested, there's a link in the show notes that will take you to, to the, some of the, the details about it. I've spent probably since January working really hard to get it into the hands of people I respect. And, you know, mainly these are people that I don't necessarily uh, know myself, but just I've worked really hard to get it into their hands. And they've said some incredible things about it. Um, Gary Lineker, a man like I, I hold in like the highest regard, he said, a book that confirms what we've always believed, that we can't be resilient on our own. In fact, resilience is about all of us being stronger than any of us. Uh, Stephen Bartlett, I was on Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CA, CEO, but um, you know, I don't know him well enough for, for him to do me favours. He says, this is a truly refreshing, captivating and important book that shifted my perceptions on a topic I thought I knew. I'm just blown away. Some of the other quotes um, I'll put out on my social media. I'm blown away with some of the comments that people have said about it. The book's available for pre-order today. Now, look, I didn't just want to come here and say, oh, look, will you pre-order my book? Pre-orders matter massively for books. It determines whether they're stocked in bookshops. It determines you know, how much pickup they get. It determines how much media they get. But I didn't just want to turn up here and go, please pre-order my book. Um, so today I'm launching a brand new free workplace culture course. And it's a lot of it is the, the thinking that I've been doing over the last few months about how can organisations build strong workplace cultures in this hybrid era. 
you know, one of the challenges that organisations have said to me is that the culture just doesn't feel the same. It feels more hollow. It feels more individualistic. Is there anything that we can do to try and bring it back? I've put hundreds of hours of work into developing this workplace culture course. And I'm giving it away free today to anyone who pre-orders the book. Now, listen, if you want to go and pre-order it from your local bookshop, nothing would make me happier. You know, if you send me your pre-order from that bookshop, um, you know, and that might be a printout from the local bookshop. It might be just a photograph of the guy at the local bookshop giving a thumbs up, whatever it is. Or it might be you order it from, you know, one of the big booksellers. As long as you forward the receipt or the proof that you've pre-ordered it, today I'll give you access to this course. Now, what this course is, firstly, it's uh, an evolved set of thinking about what I believe the components of workplace culture are, all heavily evidenced. Along the way, if you if you sign up to this, you'll see all of the 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 stuff that I'm referencing, all the research I'm referencing, but it's like done in a quite fast-paced discursive way you know some of the the episodes are five ten minutes uh, some of them are you know there's a couple of them that are 20 minutes long but they it's sort of a workplace culture course for the youtube era right you know this is is not long and boring monologues now it's available today if you go to findfortitude.net or the, you'll see that link in the show notes. You can get this and you can you can acti- activate it today and use it today. Maybe it's the sort of thing that people want to consume as a podcast rather than video. If you let me know on that, I will happily try and turn it into a private podcast feed. So, look, you know, a book I'm so proud of. Um, it's directly related to the way that we live, that we work, that, you know, our families live. I would massively appreciate your support, but I, I didn't want to just ask that for nothing. So if you want more details on the course, you can go to that website and see more details there. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your feedback. I, was, I saw a friend of mine on uh, Saturday, and there's only a couple of my friends who've actually read it, and he was you know, telling me how blown away he was by it. Now, look, you know, that's not me doing anything other than trying to tell you I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Right. Great. Thank you. What I'm going to be doing over the next month is I'm going to be adding some new video content to that. So these, uh, there's a piece of work. I did a talk for The Economist about um, a month ago and, uh, and there was a lot of good feedback on that. I'll put that as, out as a video. I'm going to do a couple of extra videos about like the, the way that things are evolving as we go. I'm going to put that, them out as videos. So effectively, this is something that's going to evolve and develop over the next couple of months. So the new book's Fortitude. It's out at the end of August. Your pre-orders are incredibly helpful. I'd be very grateful. And the course is available today. Boom. Right. Now, we've got a conversation coming up with Brian Elliott. Now, Brian runs Slack's Future Forum. Now, this is their attempt to try to second guess what's going to happen next with the world of work and to try and read the answers. Uh, and so they, they've turned a lot of it into this, I think, this sort of agenda manifesto of what work will look like in the future. Caution, I don't agree with all of it. 
So, for example, uh, their philosophy is one is remote, everyone is remote. So the idea that if you've got a remote meeting and, uh, you know, you've got a hybrid meeting and you've got everyone in a room, but there's one person on a screen, then everyone needs to be on the, go, go on the screen. You know what? This is a recipe for a really miserable Wednesday. I get that not everyone can be there all the time, but the benefit of coming into the office, there's no point coming into the office if all you're going to do is sit on a screen. So I don't agree with all of it, but I could be wrong as, as well as, as Brian's wrong. You know, I'll, I'll strongly consider that. My evolving sense is that they, I put out this um, piece of work by Nick Bloom the other day, the, the guest a couple of episodes ago. And it was about how workers uh, really don't want to bring coordination into their independence. So they, they don't want to be forced to go into on set days. The critical thing about this is, is that if people don't want to go in on set days, then effectively hybrid work is the worst of all worlds. To my mind, I wonder if it's going to be better if we go in on a smaller number, a far smaller number of coordinated days, you know, back to Wednesday plus one or back to Wednesday plus none. That rather than people going in whatever days they want, but not seeing each other. To me, you don't get any of the impact of connection there. You don't get any of the impact of coordination. My view is that those things will possibly evolve. And anyway, when I put it out on LinkedIn... People are like, yeah, I don't want to coordinate. Why should I have to coordinate? Right, okay. Then it's an illustration that probably at the moment people feel like they're being forced to go back into the office too much, to my mind. Anyway, let's go in. Love to hear your thoughts. I'll be back after the interview with Brian Elliott. Brian, great to have you back. We had such a fulfilling discussion last time that people asked for more of it. And so thankfully, there was a reason to have you back because you've got this this new book that's come out. First of all, thanks for having me back, Bruce. Uh, great to be here and always a great conversation with you. You have amazing guests and also really good questions. It's always good to get into it. Hey, and there was really lovely response, I think, last time. There was a lot of tweets and there was a lot of sort of dialogue. So look, you know, looking forward to continuing that. Just remind us for, for the people who maybe didn't listen last time, remind us what the Future Forum is. So Future Forum is a consortium. It's backed by Slack, along with our partners, Boston Consulting Group, Miller Knoll, and Management Leadership for Tomorrow. They are a nonprofit focused on advancing the careers of Black and Hispanic managers in the United States. But what we do as that consortium is two things. Uh, we do research. So we run a quarterly Pulse survey of over 10,000 knowledge workers, office workers around the globe, done it every quarter for the past two years. And we use that as the sort of research foundations for a series of conversations, because the other side of what we do is conversations among executives, groups of people who are struggling with how to make hybrid work, with how to take what we've learned over the course of the past couple of years and apply it to their teams. And so we combine those two things together, the research and the executive dialogue into playbooks and how to and suggest for people on experiments to try and, and things to do to create much more flexible, inclusive, and connected teams that we think are better for people as well as better for organizations. There's a few themes there, and, and I guess one of the ones that maybe is a surprise about all of this discussion about work evolving is the notion that that hybrid working or remote working might be a diversity and inclusion issue. And and you've got some data that I, I guess shines a light on that. Do you want to give us the perspective on that? Yeah, we do. And it goes back even to the beginning of the pandemic. So when we first started looking at the survey results in uh, summer of 2020, 
one of the things that stood out, especially when we when we look at the data, this is global. So it's US, UK, Germany, France, Japan, Australia. Um, but when we looked at the data in the US where we could get a big enough sample size of people across race and ethnicity, one of the things that we found was that sense of belonging with your team initially fell uh, pretty sizably, but it really fell among white knowledge workers. Um, it actually rose among black office workers. And we started digging into this with academics and with others and trying to understand why that would happen. And part of the reason is it comes down to in the office, there's costs around things like code switching and microaggressions. And what we've seen over the course of the past two years as this has gone uh, forward is uh, white office workers' sense of belonging with their teams has actually gotten better. It's particularly gotten better in organizations that have put a lot of effort into building, you know, culture through both digital means and, and getting people together when they can. But it's actually risen consistently for Black um, uh, office workers, for Hispanic uh, office workers in the States, uh, for Asian American office workers in the States, in part because that continued um, flexibility that people are getting gets them a chance to um, come in and out of a work environment and sort of recharge their batteries. So that's, that's one part of what we've seen. The other part that we see and we've seen consistently is differences across gender and especially for caregivers. Um, we see, we've seen this almost since the beginning of the pandemic that women more than men uh, value workplace flexibility, meaning the ability to work from home a couple of days a week. They also even more dramatically value schedule flexibility. This is the part that we talk about less, you know, in the press in terms of so much gets centered on how many days a week are people going to have to come into the office when schedule flexibility is actually even more important to people. The ability to not have nine to five days jam-packed full of meetings is, is really valued by everybody, but it's especially essential for people that are in caregiving situations. Um, and as we've looked at the data, that's shown up even more strongly more recently as companies have started uh, implementing their return to office plans. Uh, we saw a big jump yet again in the differences between men and women in terms of their desire for flexibility. Most people want it, but women want it more than men. And we especially saw it for uh, caregivers. So, for example, uh, 58% of women who are working full-time in the office want something that's not full-time versus only 48% of men. And when we look at women with children, the same thing is true. They see a lot more value in uh, schedule flexibility in particular. And that's true overall for caregivers, but it also shows up more strongly for women. And what what impact would you estimate or would the Future Forum estimate that this is going to have on the jobs market? Is is it going to be self-selecting in the sense that the best talent will want more flexibility? How, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, there, there, this has shown up consistently in the research. You know, people's expectations have changed over the past couple of years because they've spent two years in a lot of cases proving that they can be productive working from home. And whether it's, you know, um, not wanting to go back to commuting five days a week uh, or even three days a week, or whether it's uh, the the needs that they've got from a caregiving situation, I don't think this has been the great resignation. I think it's the great rethink. Uh, people are doing a recalibration of the trade-offs between jobs and their lives. And a lot of companies are leaning forward into this and thinking through it as an opportunity, right? Because if I want to attract and retain the best talent, if, if, I, if it's been proven that they can be productive working from home, at least on a part-time basis, uh, then why wouldn't I open up you know, the aperture in terms of where I hire and who I can hire to get a more flexible workforce? And people have basically told us again and again that that's what they want. So they're going to gravitate towards those environments. 
I think there's great risk as people start implementing return to office plans that are more top-down dictated, especially sort of the five days a week, or you can work any day of the week you want to from home, but it's only one day and it can never be on a Friday. Those types of rules are going to um, fly in the face of what people have demonstrated they can do over the past couple of years. And people in those organizations we know are much more likely to seek a new employer. Their odds of, of leaving are a lot higher. It's really interesting to watch this is playing out in real time. You know, these each week there's there's more data and there's more stories coming back from organisations that are maybe forcing workers in a certain number of days or they're they're trying to uh, impose some rules and we're seeing whether that works or whether that doesn't work. Is your perspective that we're going to see workplace culture feeling different or you know one of the things that a lot of people say to me they say the reason why we're trying to enforce these rules is that there was a certain team camaraderie there's a there was a certain sense of team bonding in the old way we did it and we've really felt the absence of that uh, how do you, do you think work you've mentioned belonging a couple of times is work going to feel different or how would we achieve belonging in this remote era yeah so one of the things that's important to to understand is that you know while 79 percent of people in our survey for example tell us that they want um, location flexibility most of those people don't want to be fully remote all the time they want to come together episodically, but they want to do it for social reasons. Uh, when you ask individual uh, employees what they want, the non-executives, what you get is, I want to come together for relationship building. I want to come together to see people, but I want to do it you know, once or twice a week or maybe only once a month. Um, my own team gets together uh, once a quarter. We fly people in from around, all across North America, and we spend a week together having meals, um, getting to know one another more deeply, and doing a little bit of work. But it's really um, that opportunity to gather people together, to break bread, to get to know one another more deeply. That kind of episodic gathering is really important. What we've seen in the data is, um, contrary to what a lot of people believe, sense of belonging is one of the things that we actually measure. And we've looked at it consistently. And what's happened is, especially in companies that have invested in rethinking how they build belonging, not only through you know the old bring people into an office or have a happy hour, but through digital tools and through ways that you, you know, build bridges um, and connect people to one another. Uh, sense of belonging has actually been higher the past couple of quarters for people in remote um, work setups or in hybrid than full-time office workers. In fact, what we're seeing as return to office plans start playing forward, return to office uh, keeps, keeps playing forward people who are full-time and being asked to come in full-time, their sentiment's degrading, literally quarter on quarter, much faster than anybody else. And so those kind of, I want to rebuild a sense of belonging among my team, so therefore you all need to be in five days a week, is completely contrary to the evidence that we've got out there. And it's a real opportunity for companies to rethink, don't assume that the office is the answer to all things. Take a more intentional design towards your future of work and you can create better results by bridging both digital and physical gatherings to build a better sense of belonging than you had before. It raises really interesting questions about where this will be in two years, three years, four years for me. Because, you know, I think the, the way that you describe your team gathering once a quarter, I think as soon as you've accepted that maybe being around each other every day isn't essential it's hard not to see ourselves moving to, to that situation that you've described. I've, I've seen so many people in the last two or three weeks 
who say to me, oh, we're mandated, we have to be in the office this number of days, but the days I go in, I never see anyone who's in my team. And it just strikes me as that just simply won't work and it, it won't last. I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah, so this is one of the things that, that we're finding as we talk to people. And one of the reasons we wrote the book, so How the Future Works, the book that we wrote, strings together some of this research with some of the um, tools and practices that we've adopted, but also that we've seen adopted at other companies, Genentech, IBM, Royal Bank of Canada, Levi Strauss and Company, a whole host of companies from a range of different perspectives. The answer is there's no one size fits all. And so you have to figure out what is the right answer for your organization and your team. And there's ways of doing that. But a lot of this is about how do you think about from a top level, starting with principles in terms of what you expect, you know, the future of work to look like. If you expect it to be more flexible, what's that mean to you? How do you expect people to deliver to focus on outcomes? But really giving people the tools to navigate this at a team level, because the needs of different teams are actually vastly different within a larger organization. Within Slack, where we've been doing this, for example, we use team level agreements because the frequency that I get together with my team, which is spread out across North America on a quarterly basis, Basis is different from what a sales team in New York City might want. They actually might want to get together on a regular basis and say that Tuesdays are the day that we're going to standardize towards in terms of days that we're in the office, or Tuesdays and Wednesdays, or you know, pick your pick your particular choice of, of days by simply saying we have a team level agreement. And the team level agreement is the frequency that we get together is weekly or it's monthly or it's quarterly, and we anchor on the following days makes it much easier to overcome the issue that you're raising, which is otherwise, if it's random people across random teams showing up, then you get back into this issue that we've already seen some people express, which is why am I going into the office just to do video calls all day long? Because you haven't given them the tools to actually find a way to navigate this in a way that works at the team level as opposed to organization-wide. Yeah, because one of your one of your rules, one of your best practices is that if one's virtual, all are virtual. And so as a consequence of that, you it'd be very easy, I'd presume, for you to make your journey into the office, to spend some time meeting colleagues face-to-face and then find yourself sitting next to them on a, on a Zoom call. So... Uh, what's the way around that? If if your rule is that, you know, once if everyone's in, in a Zoom call, every, once one person's in a Zoom call, everyone needs to be, doesn't that by its very nature mean that you'll just end up in the office on Zoom calls? I think it, it has that risk in terms of how you handle it across different sorts of teams and what they look like. I think you're still going to end up with this thing that says my core team of five or six people is going to come into the office and get together on Tuesdays because that's what my sales organization does. And yeah, some of your meetings are going to be on Zoom uh, dialing in. That was true prior to the pandemic also, because you might have been dialing in with somebody in Chicago and somebody in San Francisco. I've myself led teams that are geographically distributed for over 20 years, right? It's been been two decades since I've had a team that's truly completely co-located in, in one office building in one place. So that's always been an issue. But if you think about it in terms of what people are looking for when they come together in an, in like on that regular weekly basis... It's the meal together. It's let's go grab lunch together and get time together. That actually is really valuable. There also are small team meetings where there might be four out of the five of you that are sitting in the room uh, and the fifth person has an illness or can't make it in or is more geographically distanced and they're dialing in. In that instance, it's pretty easy to figure out, you know, do you all flip open the laptop? The reason why to flip open the laptop isn't just to sort of get a level playing field. It's access to the document that you're sharing in the meeting. It's access to the chat that we've all gotten used to having in, you know, present as part of the meeting structure that we've got. 
And in small team setups, that's pretty easy to navigate. So again, if you've got a team level agreement that says, you know, we get together with this frequency and it's weekly and it's these couple of days that we standardize around. If somebody can't make it in that day, they're dialing in for the meeting, but they're going to miss out on the lunch and they're going to miss out on some of the hallway conversation. That's okay. Or that it, that's how our periodicity of, of getting together works. It's interesting you you raised this idea of a team level agreement because I guess it, it sort of poses the the challenge for us. It poses the reminder for us that work the benefits of remote working and flexible working aren't necessarily being equally experienced at the moment. Executives, leaders are having a different experience to workers, and I guess the danger of those leaders or executives making decisions is that the decisions might not be in in sync, in accord with what their teams are feeling. Have you witnessed much evidence of that, of, of this sort of disconnect between executives and the rest of us? We, ab- we absolutely have. We've seen it in the data um, in terms of what executives, you know, continue to express, which is they often want, they want to come into the office more often uh, than their individual contributors do. That's been consistent, you know, for a year plus now. We're sort of seeing a little bit more insidious version of that happening uh, as return to office plans uh, take place, which is, um, especially in full-time workers, uh, the individual contributors are being asked to come into the office more often than the executives themselves are showing up. In fact, almost twice the rate uh, that individual workers are showing up versus executives. So executives aren't necessarily walking their talk either, meaning they're saying, I need you back in the office five days a week, but they're not coming back in five days a week. And that's got real risks around trust, right? And people's trust in their, in their leadership and their, in their organization. One of the things that we, that we talk about in the book is before you start, you know, handing out forms for people to do team level agreements and training them on how to do it, you actually need to start a level above that with the executive leadership and guardrails. Because if executives aren't leading by example, the whole thing isn't going to work. And so there's a couple of ways to do that. Um, if you if you believe as an executive team that you want to support more flexible ways of working, then executives leading by examples by example means things like the executives themselves don't come in more than three days a week, right? So they're setting you know speed limits for themselves. The executives are finding a way to do executive reviews that are you know on video calls to kind of keep that level playing field going. Um, but there's real risk as as things start reopening that if executives say get back in the office five days a week and they don't do it, they're exhibiting one level of you know um, uh, of creating one level of issue for their employees. There's the equal problem on the other side, which is if executives are saying you can be flexible and work in the office when it suits you, but they're all showing up five days a week on the executive floor and. Everybody starts getting, you know, concerned about, you know, proximity bias becoming a factor that you're, you're not walking your talk. And especially if that proximity bias starts playing out in terms of promotion rates of people who need flexibility more, uh, people from underrepresented minorities, women, caregivers, then this could become a pretty negative cycle if we're not careful. So some press coverage that that Slack had had an async week, an asynchronous week. Um, and I'm intrigued about that. I know you've, in the book that you've published, you've you've written about thinking about certain modalities and certain times that work for different international jurisdictions and trying to, to plan uh, focus time and, and meeting time. But how did the async week work and, and what was the learnings from it? 
Yeah, there's there's different terms for it in different companies. We've we call it internally Maker Week as well as Async Week within Salesforce more broadly. The idea here is, you know, stepping back half a step, schedule flexibility is actually even more valuable to people than location flexibility. And I haven't run into a company yet that says, you know what, we don't have enough of meetings. We need more meetings. Everybody says, I have a meeting problem, right? I have too many of them. They're not very effective. There's too many people in them, especially for middle managers who are super stressed out anyway. The burden and the load of meetings can be um, huge. But everybody then says, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to break this habit. Simply having a once a quarter, no meetings week, an async week in order to do asynchronous work, a maker week to go heads down and do your individual work is a great place to start. Because once a quarter is saying, what we're going to do is we're going to cancel all recurring meetings this week. And that's going to give people some time that's freed up on their calendars to do more focused work. But also what we want you to do during the course of that week is we want you to take that opportunity to look at all those recurring meetings that we just canceled this week and think about, is that an effective meeting? Could it be done completely asynchronous on an ongoing basis? If it's not, if you need to keep the meeting, does it have to happen every week? Could it go every other week? Could you alternate between a, a live meeting together and an asynchronous meeting? If it has to happen, does it need everybody in it that's currently in it? Could you trim the attendees and just do a better job of producing the notes and the next steps coming out of the meeting? It's not only a chance for you to give people a break from recurring meetings, it's also it's also sort of a mandate to people who own those meetings to rethink whether or not they're actually necessary and they're you know, being run effectively. Schedules and that sort of nine to five nonstop, it, you know, I am available and bookable on an, uh, for that. That assumption creates a lot of havoc where people just really struggle with tools to make it better. So some of this comes back to things like team of agreements, but a maker week, an async week is a great experiment to try. You can try it within, you know, a smaller party organization first, see how it works, take the lessons from that and apply it to the broader organization. But when you, when it gets down to it, you've got to find a way to experiment and try new things in order to make anything work from a flexibility perspective. I wonder if the, the consequence of all of this, because once you've got async weeks or you've got meetingless days, actually the, the lived experience of work for most people over the last... 10 years, 15 years more, has been that work has been about teams and work um, and work has been done collectively, decisions are made collectively. And we've been somewhat removed from individuals making decisions. Decisions have been socialised. Decisions have been taken to a meeting, then to another meeting. They've been sort of gradually layered on top of each other. And I wonder if we're by the very nature of, of what's happening right now, we might move to a period where work is a bit more individually accountable and we might hire someone thinking specifically, I want them to do this, this thing for me. Can you see any of that? Can you see us shifting from this collective responsibility that permeates work right now to something more focused and specific? Yeah, there definitely are. We talk about this within our own team and our own group, which is, really getting clarity about who's accountable. It, it, you know, whether you use, a, there, there's all kinds of frameworks out there around, you know, responsible, accountable, consulted, informed, erase matrix, or there's other variants of that. But we strive, especially as we've grown, even our small team, to get clearer as we grow about who's responsible and who's accountable for different aspects of work. Who needs to sign, who needs to create something, who needs to sign off on it, and literally naming names of people which is a super effective way to make sure that what you don't have as any organization grows 
is you go from being any team when you start sort of is like uh, uh, the, the swarm ball that you've seen little kids. I remember when my kids were young playing football, you know, they're, they're out uh, kicking the ball around and the ball moves to the center. That means that every kid on the field moves to the center. Right. And that's what happens often with meetings and culture and work, right. Is it's a discussion. You're invited to the meeting. It's not clear who's responsible for taking a decision. It's not even entirely clear why you're there. And so the 12 of you in the meeting, you kick the ball around for a while, and then you come to the end of the meeting and you say, well, we'll meet again next week. That's the, the same disease as opposed to saying, hey, at the end of the day, we know that we've got another uh, piece of content coming out. There's a report and the report is actually Eliza's to drive and own. Sheila is going to look at the initial draft and give her an approval. But then from there on forward, you know, it's all up to Eliza versus who's got the press release. And the press release is Audrey's responsibility, but Sheila needs to sign off on that one. Like just getting super crisp about here's a body of work, who's responsible for it, who's going to sign off on it is kind of critical in terms of, especially when you're growing teams, how you keep them effective and don't devolve into swarm ball as a you know team uh, mechanism. It, yeah. If you try and thinking some moves ahead, then you can definitely see that the other predicted trend is that we'll move to more freelance workers. And to some extent, I can now see that because if you're hiring someone to do something specific for you, then you maybe will put a value on getting that specific thing done rather than having a direct report who you need to be re-upping with new things to do. I, I just wonder whether it will lead to us being slightly more devolved organizations going forwards. It, it, it might That might be true in terms of you know, freelancers and, and how things work. I, I think the, the challenge in all, in all of this is the most valuable work is the most, and the most important work often is the most cross-functional work. Right. So even when I think about my own team's work product, there is a there's a research organization that works with academics to field our research in the first place. Uh, and, and we stand on you know that that as a foundation. The distance between that research survey output, which is hundreds of pages long, into a press release, you know, involves people that cut across research, content, communications, marketing. The value comes in the distillation of the knowledge that actually then gets shared from a public perspective. When I think about the same thing from whether it's a great marketing campaign, right? It's not just the marketing team came up with it. It's rooted someplace in some piece of research. It actually serves the purposes of the sales organization. It actually has visually stimulating, you know, content that comes out of it. That's all interdisciplinary work. That's where the hard work is. That's where figuring out like who's actually in charge of the components, but who's also in charge of pulling it together. You're going to have freelancers plugged into pieces of that, but the most valuable parts of that are going to be how those components actually come together to create a successful campaign as opposed to who wrote the body copy. The body copy is great, but it only works in the context of the broader campaign being successful. In, in the book, you, you cover how organizations like Dropbox are sort of using their office for experiences or for, um, they're, they're changing the relationship they've got with the office, that the office is a place for you to come and have these studio um, experiences. Do, do you think that will become a norm? Do you think our relationship with the office is fundamentally changed? I, I do think that you're going to see this happen with a lot of organizations. And this is part of what I think you're getting at. You're going to see this bifurcation of um, there are organizations out there that are going to have offices for a long time and forever because they need them. So Genentech, which is also profiled in our book, 
has large portions of their um, office population that are also need access to labs, right? They, they are, they're working, you know, certain days of the week where they're actually in a laboratory where they're working with equipment that's necessary to the job. And so they're coming in, they're doing work in the lab, they're going out into an office environment, and then maybe they're working from home a couple of days a week. You're going to see a much more consistent pattern of office usage there than you are a software development company. So whether it's Dropbox or whether it's Slack, you, you can get into habits and patterns where a lot of the organization, product design and engineering teams are going to think about, we're going to come together, you know, what's the month of the, what, sorry, what's the week of the month that we're going to come together? And for them, you know, the frequency on that office environment is going to be a lot lower. The other thing that this um, sort of, that part of the conversation though ignores is there's about 20% of the population out there that needs an office, right? So when we survey people, there are a lot of folks out there that the home environment is just not conducive. They've got an apartment that's small that just doesn't afford them the space to be effective in doing the job, or whether it's that they themselves want and desire the sort of physical separation of my work environment and my home environment. And so when you talk to anybody, whether it's Dropbox or Matt Malinweg at, at Automatic, what you'll find is we actually think this flexibility is really important. We also need to make sure that we can serve the needs of, of individuals as well. And so there's always going to be some portion of our population of, of folks that need that support, that are going to need an office environment. So I, th- I think what it creates is a need to redesign offices and to really radically rethink you know, how they're used. If 60% or 80% of your office space was dedicated to open floor plans with you know, rows of desks or cubicles, the need for that has just shrunk dramatically. But the need for flexible spaces for teams to come together has grown. If you look at most people's office usage, even pre-pandemic, this was sort of true already. That open floor plan space was probably pretty dramatically underutilized, partly because everybody knew it wasn't very effective. It never worked for me personally, right? I would always go find a quiet corner to try to get my own work done. And the thing that was always overbooked were the meeting rooms and especially any room that you could host, you know, a gathering in, a small event. Those rooms were booked like crazy. I think we're, what we're going to see is, is a shift of, you know, companies are thinking harder about how do I think about my shared space and how I can use that much more flexibly while making sure that, that there is space for those that need it. We've got to make sure we serve their needs as well. Just to finish, really, there's, there's a professor at uh, Harvard, Raj Chowdhury, who believes that there's an inevitability that work will end up being remote first for all organizations because that's what um, the, the the best talent wants. And so it just begs the question, you know, we, we make the mistake of thinking that we're at the end of a journey or that, you know, this is a new equilibrium, whereas in fact, you know, we've got a, a lot to go. And if you were projecting forwards, is there any is there anything hinted in the data that you think, okay, this is a watch this space on this one? Oh, I think digital first uh, firms, firms that are taking an approach that says we're going to stitch everybody together. We're going to shift our mindset from being there's a physical headquarters that's a, that's a building. Uh, that's how we think about work to being much more centered on the digital experience first and using physical to augment it. I do think that that model uh, will play out as the competitive winner over the course of the next couple of decades. What's happened the past two years has just been an accelerant of a trend that existed beforehand. Like like any trend, though, it involves change. And if you have been an executive for several decades and were successful in an environment uh, prior to this, then it is a challenge because it requires a fair amount of, of change management. 
But if you think about a digital first approach, which doesn't mean never in person, it means getting people together at least episodically. It allows you to recruit from a much broader, much more diverse pool of talent. It helps you retain that talent and especially helps you retain your diverse talent. And so it's worth the investment. And that's why you're seeing a lot of companies, you know, even a year ago, start to move in this direction, which is we're going to retain a large degree of flexibility for people. And I think you're going to see a continued acceleration of that trend uh, coming out of the pandemic as well. Thank you to Brian. Their book, How the Future Works, is listed in the show notes and you can link, you can take a look at that there. If you're interested in any of the stuff about my book, you'll find all of the details at findfortitude.net. Really grateful for your support. Thank you so much. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.